We, we saw Joseph struggling with doubts and fears. He, he knew that he had been appointed by God to do a job. And his job was to raise this boy that he would name Jesus. He knew that the angel who spoke to him during that night had called him son of David. He was a descendant of that poet, warrior, king, the one who had single-handedly destroyed the one-man army they called Goliath. But certainly Joseph didn't feel like David. He didn't feel like a giant slayer. In fact, as we see him in that video, he felt like a failure. And we heard him say to God, I I show up with my pregnant wife hours from birth after a 90-mile journey, and I can't even find a room? This isn't how I imagined us bringing a child into the world, especially yours. Now, surely some of us can identify with Joseph. We do our best to follow the rules, but we slip up. Like that little letter I got in the mail the other day saying I had forgotten to slow down in a school zone. Took a chunk out of our pocketbook. We try, but we slip up. We make careful plans that begin to unravel and fall apart. And we feel lost, and we feel a bit like a loser. And as this happens over time, we begin to feel like Joseph, who we heard say to God, God, you've got the wrong guy. What I'm trying to say, God, is that I'm not enough. We've been there feeling like we didn't have enough to get the job done, not enough resources, not enough strength, wisdom, or courage, leaving us feeling like, I'm not enough. However, Joseph overcame his doubts and his fears, and at the end of the short drama, we heard him say, but I promised you, God, even if I don't feel like I'm enough, I'll still give you all that I have. In this short dramatization of a familiar Bible story, we we see Joseph moving from painful self-doubt and fear to trust and obedience, just like the old gospel song that came out of a Moody Bible crusade, Moody, uh, Dwight Moody crusade, trust and obey, for there's no other way, no other way. In trust and obedience, Joseph found the courage to stand and say, I will give you all that I have. Now, Joseph's story is very familiar to us. However, let's take a fresh look at it this morning and see if we can't find something new in this story, something that will help us understand ourselves and something that will understand God and his plans for us. So turn in your Bible to the book of Matthew, chapter 1. And I forgot to write down the page number, but we'll begin looking at verse 18. Matthew, chapter 1, verse 18. This is how Jesus the Messiah was born. His mother, Mary, was engaged to be married to Joseph. Let's stop there. Getting married was very different in that culture than it is for us today. Getting married involved three distinct stages. The first was the engagement, the period of engagement. Uh, That's when arrangements were made for the wedding. Now, for some people, that started in infancy. Their parents chose their marriage partner when they were children. 
That was the beginning of the period of engagement. It could be a very, very long period. Uh, but other times in that culture, a matchmaker would bring together two young adult people to become a, a married couple. And occasionally, some young man would find a, a young woman and, and say, I think I'm interested in that woman. And that family of that man would hire a matchmaker to go to the family of that young woman and they'd work out the terms of a marriage. Very different than the way we do it today. I don't think any of us ever hired a matchmaker, have we men, to negotiate with our wife-to-be's family. We haven't done it. The second stage was the betrothal. Money is exchanged. The groom would give to the father of the bride a mohar in Hebrew. It was a, uh, a gift of money, basically compensating the father of the bride for the loss of a daughter. Some people call it a bride price, but in that culture, it wasn't really a, you weren't buying a wife. You were choosing a wife, but you were paying back the dad for the loss. At the same time, the father of the bride would give to his daughter a shaluim, a bit like a dowry, but it was also a bit like an advance payment on the inheritance. You're getting married, here's what you'd inherit later, spend it wisely now. And then the second thing, first thing in the betrothal, betrothal was the exchange of money. The second thing was the declaration of vows. And that's what we see in this picture here, where a young couple would stand with a rabbi and they would exchange their vows, very much like we do in a wedding ceremony today. And they would declare that no matter what happens, they would stay married. The betrothal period could last as long as 12 months. Uh, Following the vows, the couple were as good as married. To end the betrothal, they had to get a divorce, using the same procedure as they would use to get a divorce in the case of a marriage. The difference is that they did not live together. In Galilee, where Joseph lived, they could not even be together alone. Obviously, there is no sexual uh, part of their relationship in that culture. Now, if during the betrothal, the wife-to-be did have sexual relations with someone, she and that person would be stoned, executed, unless it was a rape. That's the law. You can look it up. Deuteronomy 22, verses 23 to 24. Then this third stage of marriage was the marriage event. And what would happen is the groom and his friends would go to the house of the bride. It would be quite a parade, a lot of fun, a lot of noise. And they would take the bride from her parents' home, take her back to the groom's home, and they would party. Sometimes as long as a week. Kind of depending on how much money the families had because it was an expensive proposition. Early in that party, the bride and groom would go off to a secluded chamber by themselves with complete privacy. And they would consummate and seal their marriage with sexual intercourse. From that moment on, they had all the rights and all the responsibilities of marriage. Now, from that description, we realize that Joseph and Mary were in the betrothal period. They weren't yet married 
they were betrothed. They'd exchanged the money, they'd exchanged the vows. They were legally married, but they still weren't living together. And it sounds so far like an interesting story. But less than a third of the way through verse 18, the story takes a dramatic and potentially tragic turn. As we read, before the marriage took place, while she was still a virgin, she became pregnant through the power of the Holy Spirit. King James is much more accurate and descriptive than most of our translations. The King James says she was found with child. She was pregnant, but it was, now she couldn't hide it. It was becoming obvious to the people around her that she was pregnant. And Joseph found out. Now, Joseph's thoughts must have been something along these lines. Mary has a baby. And it's not there because of anything I did. We haven't been alone together, so we obviously haven't been intimate. How could Joseph reach any other conclusion than the obvious conclusion? Mary has been with another man. It had to be in his mind. It had to hit him like a ton of bricks. And at that point, Joseph is faced with a terrible and painful decision. Now, in the words of one of my new commentaries I got last year, the African commentary says, Joseph lived in a male-dominated, honor-centered culture where wounded honor had to be avenged in a public way. He couldn't just deal with this breach of his honor privately. He had to deal with it openly. If he responded to her pregnancy according to the norm, Mary would have been publicly shamed and quite possibly stoned. Probably not had they lived in Jerusalem, but fairly likely since they lived in Galilee in the north. However, the story doesn't follow the conventional narrative. It's quite the opposite. As we read, Joseph, to whom she was engaged, was a righteous man and did not want to disgrace her publicly, so he decided to break the engagement quietly. According to his plan, Mary would have had her baby. Most people would have assumed that it was also Joseph's baby. And most people then would have assumed that Joseph had found something displeasing in her and had chosen to quietly divorce her. In the Jewish culture, and it wasn't the way God intended it, but by the time of Christ in the Jewish culture, a man could divorce his wife simply because she had become displeasing to him. So, yes, he would save her life. Yes, he would look like he had been the father, but he would still leave her in shame because he's divorced her because she wasn't worthy to be his wife. The story doesn't end there. God intervenes. God sent an angel to deliver a message. As he considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Joseph, son of David, the angel said, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. I 
like that because it suggests to me that he really did want to marry her. But he was afraid to. For all kinds of reasons that we can easily imagine. Don't be afraid to take her as your wife. For the child within her was conceived by the Holy Spirit and she will have a son and you are to name him Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. Now considered is way too soft a word. As if after church you consider... Should I have lunch at Subway or McDonald's or the keg? You know, that's, that's considering. The root of the word that describes what Joseph was doing is passion. He was torn apart with emotion as he thought about this. Deeply emotional, as only a betrayed person can feel. Angry one moment, longing the next, blaming himself the next, back to anger again, all the while confused, not knowing what to do, and fearful. Now his inner turmoil of pain and indecision must have kept him awake during the night. I'd ask for a show of hands, but everybody would raise their hand. Who hasn't been awake during the night with some inner turmoil? Confusion, pain, loss, fear, we all have. And often what we do is we get out of bed. So we can imagine Joseph getting out of bed and sitting in a chair, but he's exhausted, and we can imagine him maybe dozing off, but soon to be awakened, back in pain and turmoil. But in one of those moments, maybe while he's dozed off, there's a dream, and in that dream, an angel speaks to him. Now, our dreams are often a reflection of what's inside of us. They reveal our, our fears, our anxieties, um, our deep longings sometimes. Some of our dreams can be most frightening. And, and we wake up in a bit of terror. And then awake we say, oh good, that was a dream. That wasn't real. And we feel relieved. Because in the dream it felt quite real. And, and nasty. I'm glad it wasn't real. But Joseph's dream was real. A real angel delivered to Joseph a message from God. Used a dream, but even though it was a dream, it was a real angel and a real message. However, while the angel was real, the message sounded unreal. It sounded unreal. It wasn't unreal, but it sounded unreal. Virgin births don't happen. Even in that culture, they knew that. And how could Mary's child of all children be the savior of God's people, much less the savior of the world? It sounds unreal. Now, we know from the first chapter of Luke that we're going to look at next next Sunday that Mary already knew all of this. But she had had her own encounter with a divine angel a divine messenger. But do we find it curious that she had never told Joseph about that encounter? Because it's obvious from this passage that she hasn't. She hasn't told him about Gabriel's visit. Well, maybe we shouldn't be so curious about that because who of us would be willing to go to somebody and say, you know, an angel visited me last night? And they look back at us and say, are you still taking your meds? Had she gone to Joseph, would he have been 
able to believe her? It just sounded too outrageous. So I can understand Mary not telling Joseph. Now finally, both have had angelic messages outlining God's plan for them. And now we see them moving forward, facing their future together. In verses 24 and 25, when Joseph woke up, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded and took Mary as his wife. But he did not have sexual relations with her until her son was born. And Joseph named him Jesus. So Joseph quickly moves them out of the betrothal stage into the marriage stage. We assume that he got his buddies together. They did the parade to her father's house. They took her back to his house. They had a bit of a party. But they didn't consummate and seal the marriage. But he's done the visible physical part. He's, he's made her his wife in marriage. Together they've embraced God's plan for their lives. Now was that the end of their doubt and fear? Hardly. Their lives weren't easy. Yes, they were married, but people then, like now, can do the math, can't they? And people would be whispering, that baby came early. Whose baby was it? What's going on here? Are these the people that can't keep the rules? Well, who could they tell about this angelic message without people thinking that they were unstable or ridiculing them or laughing at them. God made her pregnant. But there's one other thing to remember. The idea of God making someone pregnant to the Jewish mind was repugnant. They hated the Romans. The Romans were the occupying conquerors. And they really hated Roman religion because in Roman religion there were many gods. They had one. There were many gods. And these gods sometimes acted very much like humans. Sometimes these gods would impregnate humans. And to them, that kind of religion was just appalling. And for many Jews, this idea of God's spirit causing Mary to be pregnant would have been a little bit too close to Roman religion for their comfort. So it wasn't easy. Now, Mary and Joseph weren't handicapped by their fears and doubts. Together, they had the courage to embrace God's plan and to live with the consequences. Somehow, they found courage to live with the contempt and derision that must have followed them. Later, they had to live with the hatred of King Herod, who did everything within his power to kill their son, Jesus. Where did the courage come from? Well, there's a hint in the closing verses of today's reading. When Joseph woke up, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded and took Mary as his wife, but he did not have sexual relations with her until her son was born. Joseph named him Jesus. Who told him to name the child Jesus? The angel. They mutually heard God. They mutually trusted God. And together they obeyed God. Listening, trusting, obeying gave them the courage and the strength that they needed. Now let's think a minute about courage. What, what is courage 
Courage is not the absence of fear or doubt. Courage is an acquired ability to do what has to be done in spite of the fear. Soldiers who are in a battle are not fearless. They're scared to death. But they do what they have to do, first for the sake of the man next to them, the soldier next to them whose life depends on their performance partly, but also for a cause. Courage finds a way to press forward in spite of fear. Courage overcomes fear by looking at the purpose of our life. Courage overcomes fear by embracing God's plan for our life. God's purpose and plan for Joseph and Mary was that they would create, be active in, in, in God's redemptive activity, in God's redemptive plan for the human race. Now, being part of the plan, as we've seen all along this morning, wasn't easy. It was an enormously difficult calling. But wouldn't we all agree that it was worth it? Aren't we glad, as God's people, that Mary and Joseph heard God, listened to God, trusted in God, and obeyed God? Yes, we are. Now, had they not, I guess God could have found another couple. But no, I'm very thankful that they heard and trusted and obeyed. I'm guessing right now, though, that most of us are feeling some disconnect between our experience and Joseph's experience, or Mary's. God spoke to them through angelic messengers. When was it the last time that God sent an angel to speak to us in a dream? Not a dream about an angel. I mean a, a, a dream where an angel actually speaks to us and we know it was real. Yeah, I don't think any of us have, maybe. Maybe you have. Most of the time, we think God really hasn't spoken to us. Probably if I took a poll and say, to, 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 to whom of you has God really spoken clearly? Some of you say, no, I don't know that he ever has. We're a bit like little Samuel that you see in this picture with Eli. God calls him by name, and he thinks it's Eli calling him. Twice he goes in there and says, Eli, what do you want? He doesn't say Eli. This is more respectful. But what do you, what do you want? And he said, no, I'm not, I didn't call you. And then finally Eli figures out, no, you're hearing God's voice. So next time say, speak, Lord, your servant is listening. But often we, we maybe hear God's voice, but we don't recognize it as God's voice. If I go to a church service with a real desire in my heart to hear God speak to me, I always come away hearing something. Sometimes it's through the sermon. Sometimes it's through a song. Often it's through the music. Sometimes it's through another worshiper who says something to me, and I say, oh, I just heard something from God, a message. Sometimes it's in a prayer that someone prays. But if I come to church without that desire to hear God speak to me, the odds are pretty fair that I'll go away empty-handed. I won't hear him speak because I haven't come with that desire and expectation to hear him speak at home in the morning when I'm reading my Bible. If I'm just reading it to check it off my list, I'm probably not going to hear anything. But if I begin that time of reading and say, Lord, please speak to me, 
Most of the time, I hear something that clearly is God speaking to me. We need to want to hear God. Now, having said that, when I pray that and, and I don't hear anything necessarily that I can write down or walk away with, I've still done a good thing. Because everything we do that reinforces our habits of spiritual discipline is a good thing and a positive thing. Now, this is us on the screen. This is Elam Chapel. And this Advent in the coming year, I'd like to encourage us to learn to be better listeners to God. Let's learn to listen for his voice. And when we hear it, let's embrace his plan for our lives. Now, we know in a general way what that plan is. He wants us to be disciples of his son, Jesus, to follow him carefully. And he wants to use us to help other people become disciples. But let's embrace that this year. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we are like Joseph, full of doubts and full of fears. You have called us to be part of your redemptive plan, the greatest plan in the history of the universe. We can say that without fear of exaggeration. You've called us to be part of that plan. Help us to embrace your plan in trust and in obedience that we might be part of the redemption of the people around us. For we ask it, Jesus, in your name. Amen.